Let's go ahead and bow in prayer as we open up in the book of 1 Timothy. Lord, we just thank you for this wonderful day of singing and worshiping and song. Lord, we ask you to guide us as we go through these scriptures that we're going to look at today. Help us to see how they're applicable to our lives and how we are to live. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the command of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. Unto Timothy, my own son in the, in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought you to abide still in Ephesus when I went into Mesopotamia, that you might charge some that teach the, no other doctrine. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister to questions rather than to godly edification which is in faith, so do. All right, so we're going to look at this. This is Paul's greeting to Timothy. Last week we talked about who Timothy was and all of that. And today we read Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is how he opens most of his letters, identifying who he is and what his position is. And why is it important for there to be an apostle? Because an apostle is a sent one with a message. And Paul is sent to the Gentile church primarily. And remember in the book of Acts, when Paul went to all these places on his missions trip, he would go to a Jewish synagogue on, on the Sabbath or Saturday. They would basically kick him out more times than not. And the next day, he'd go preach to Gentiles. And it is grateful that I am grateful that Paul taught to Gentiles because almost everybody in this room, if not everybody in this room, is a Gentile, not a Jew. Okay? Um, so I am glad that he talked to Gentiles and he preached. And he says that he did this by the command of God our Savior. Paul did not go around just willy nilly saying, okay, I'm doing this just because I want to. He was under command. And do you realize that all of us as Christians have at least one command that we need to be aware of? And that's when Jesus was trans translated into heaven after the, after the 40 days of being around after the resurrection. He says, go into all the world teaching and preaching the gospel. That is the one thing all Christians have to do. Now, some people aren't teachers. Some people aren't pastors. Some people aren't evangelists. But you know... We are called to do it. And it was a command. You know, we read a lot of things in the Bible and say, well, this is a nice suggestion. People read the Ten Commandments and think, well, look at this. We've got ten suggestions on how to live. That's not what God says. You know, and it's kind of interesting because when we read it in Greek or Hebrew, we see a lot more commands than we do in English. Okay? In Second and First Thessalonians, it says, pray without ceasing. That's an imperative. It's a command. We're supposed to be constantly in prayer. Now, that doesn't mean we're on our knees, on our face, in front of God 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. But we need to be ready to pray. When we see something that needs to attention, we pray for it. When we're in a situation, we should pray for it. You know, we hear this statement all the time, and many of you may have said this because I've said it myself. I've tried everything I can do. I might as well pray. You now, kind of missing our scripture, aren't we? <laughs> If we start with prayer, <laughs> you know, and prayer doesn't mean I give it to God and then just I wait for him to give me an answer. Sometimes I pray to God and then I go do what I can do until he tells me to do something else. <laughs> but, you know, we do need to go to God in prayer. God, this is what I need. This is what this person needs. 
How many of you have ever been asked by somebody to pray for them and you go, yeah, I'm going to pray for you, and then forgot to pray for them? Yeah. Uh, I learned a long time ago the best thing to do when somebody asks you to pray, pray for them right that moment. My son Samuel's really good at that. If you ask him to pray for you, he'll, he'll pray for you right that moment. He'll probably pray for you later too, but he's going to pray for you when you ask for prayer. Right that moment. You know, we need to do that as a Christian. You know, because I've done it myself. Totally meaning to pray for somebody. And then realizing four days after their event that, oh man, I was supposed to pray for this person. I've done that. You know, and I've all told you, if I don't write it down, you know I'm going to forget it. <laughs> uh, when you tell me that somebody's been healed and take, take them off the prayer list, I've told you, put it already, put it in the offering box. Because I know that I'm going to forget. When I'm praying for people, I want to pray for them then. But Paul says, I am commanded by God to do this. And this command is from Acts chapter 9. And I want to just read his command, if you don't remember his command. Acts 9, 15. But the Lord said unto me, Go your way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear the name of my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, God hasn't called all of us to suffer. <laughs> Paul was called to suffer. And if you don't, aren't familiar with Paul's life, you know, he, was shipwrecked, he said he was shipwrecked three times. He was, he was stoned more than once, once left for dead. Uh, chased out of just about every town that he went into for preaching God's word. You know, and, I, and I love it because when he describes that in Corinthians, he goes, these were light afflictions. <laughs> How many of us would think it would, was light afflictions to be chased out of every place we went and be stoned and attacked? And he says he was beat with 39 lashes on multiple occasions. You know, his wasn't just being taunted. He had physical abuses. And he goes, they were just light things. That's what God called me to do. <laughs> You know, we need to, as Christians, have that attitude. When we go through hard times, it's just a light affliction. When we go through hard times in this life, what will this life mean trillions of years from now when we're in heaven, looking back at this life? And that's what Paul said. It is a light affliction compared of the weight of glory. He says, I've got heaven. I've got heaven to look forward to. Because Jesus Christ called him and he responded to that call. Then he said unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, and this literally is not his own physical son. This is just a, this is a young man that he went to, to Lystra, and he found Eunice and Lois and Timothy, and for whatever reason, took Timothy under his wing to disciple him. I hope everybody in this room has had somebody to disciple them over their lifetime. The greatest thing that you can do as an older Christian is find somebody to disciple. Paul did this mainly to Timothy and Titus and, and Philemon. There's a number of people he lists that he took under his wing and said, these are the guys that I'm going to train. They're going to be my right-hand people. You know, what are you doing with the knowledge you get from God? If all you do is get it in your mind and don't pour it back out or don't live it, you're wasting your time. We need to be able to take what we learn from the Bible, how to live a Christian life, and pour it into other people. I've done that with my kids when they were growing up. And for years, they were my primary disciple, disciples. Over the years, I've had other people that I've discipled. You know, we need that person. And we need somebody, even ourselves. Even for me, I've got people that I go to when I have a question, which is often, but sometimes I get a question. I'm going, okay, who can I call? 
And I have a handful of people that I call and say, hey, I've got this, this question for you. Now, one thing about being in teaching somebody, though, they might outgrow you. <laughs> they might outgrow you eventually. And you know what? That's what you actually hope for. You hope that they take what you pour into their life and that they grow beyond you. I love talking to my oldest son who was here a couple weeks ago with his, with his wife and the baby. Now, he can ask me questions that, make, that challenge me. Most of the questions I get, I can answer without doing a whole lot of research. He asks me a question, <laughs> it's going to be something I have to go to the Bible and go to, the, go to deep study over. Why? Because I basically taught him what I know. <laughs> And I've grown since he's left, but he's, he's grown in tremendously in many ways with God. But that's what we want from our disciples. When we disciple them, we want them to grow beyond whatever we teach them so that they can be stronger in God. And I'm looking forward to what can happen to my grandson when he teaches my grandson and see where my grandson's going to get in go with God. Generation by generation. And Timothy was one that he pulled by pulled into his side and said, you are my son. And he says, grace, mercy, and peace. Now, normally Paul just says peace or grace, occasionally mercy, but for Timothy, he uses all of those. And we've talked several times. What does the word grace mean? It means that we do get what we don't deserve. By grace, we get to go to heaven. By grace, we get peace in our heart through all the trials and tribulations we have to face in this world. By grace, we have God meeting our needs, every need. You know, the acronym God, uh, Christ, God's riches at Christ's expense <laughs> is a good one. It's simple, but we get all that God has by grace. It's a wonderful word. You know, we use it all the time in church without hardly thinking about it. But you know, Amazing grace is a wonderful song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You know, what do we deserve? We deserve all kinds of punishment and you know, be put into stocks and bonds and, and jail and beat and, and end up in hell. And God says, by my grace, I'm making heaven available to you. All through Jesus Christ's sacrifice. Then he says, and mercy. Now, mercy is the flip side of grace. That's not getting what we deserve. You know, and the easiest way to explain that to you, if somebody throws himself on the mercy of the court, they're saying, I am guilty, but please don't push, punish me too hard. God gives mercy. The first mercy is that he sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins. And he did it willingly, as we talk, have talked about. Before God created all the world... The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit got together and said, we're going to create this world, man's going to sin, and Jesus, would you die for them? Do you realize that the moment Jesus said yes, the Father said, these people have been redeemed. He hasn't even created the people yet. But the moment Jesus said yes, redemption's price was paid. What a powerful thought. And then he created man, man filled, and it was like, okay, Jesus, you're going to die for them. Mercy. God's mercy to give us a way out. God's righteous, holy demands needed a sacrifice made for sin. He could not have just said, okay, we're just going to forgive everybody. We're just going to forgive the whole world just because I want to. 
You know, how many of you as parents ever had kids that you didn't want to discipline but knew you had to? I have four kids. I've had many times when I've had to do that. You know, my, dad, my dad's famous words whenever he would spank us is, this hurts me more than it does you. you know, and when I was a kid, I definitely did not believe that. <laughs> when I became an adult and a father, I understood every bit of it. Because I will say straight up, if somebody can spank their children without it hurting, their, hurting them emotionally, they should not spank their children. Because... That is not, that will become abuse. It won't become discipline. God is going to hate sending people to hell. He will have tears in his eyes if they go, when, they, when they go to hell. Why do they go to hell? Because they reject the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that he made for them. And he's going to have tears in his eyes as he sends them to where they deserve because they chose it. But he's not going to make him happy to do so. He's not going to be up there, oh boy, I get to send somebody to hell. That's not Jesus, God's attitude. There's going to be, oh, why? Why did you reject? Why did you reject my son? And then he says, and peace. And we've given the definition of peace so many times. It is the tranquil state of a soul assured of his place with God no matter what circumstances he's in. Pretty powerful definition of peace. Why can we get through this world no matter what goes on? Because we've got heaven. If Jesus Christ is in our heart and he's our Lord and Savior, we've got heaven. No matter what goes on in this life, we're looking to heaven. And the more we look to heaven, the more we should be moved to reach people to bring them with us. Because the alternative is they're headed to hell. And I really don't know if we understand the full complexity of hell. Because if we did, we would be so motivated to evangelize. Hell, separation from God for eternity. That's bad enough in and of itself because my greatest peace is that I'm connected to God in this life. To be unconnected from God is serious. Then it says the worm gnaws on them, which is their conscience. When they get to hell, they're going to know that they deserve being there. God will have shown them every opportunity they had to know that he is God and that Jesus died. And then you've got the fire and brimstone and all the other stuff that it talks about. But you know the two worst ones, being separated from God and having your conscience. How many of you have ever, don't raise your hands again, <laughs> have had, a, had an issue in your life that your conscience bothers you? Maybe so bad you can't sleep. You know, and you just feel bad and say, I have got to get this taken care of and, and repent. Imagine eternity like that and not being able to repent and get rid of it. Not be able to get rid of it. That is what hell is all about. And we need to share that gospel with people, help them understand what is coming. And then he says, all this stuff comes, comes from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. God's gracious gift. Grace, mercy, peace comes from God. I have been asked so many times over the years, how can you be so happy? How can you go through these things without having so many problems? And I, and I go, God, <laughs> you know, let me tell you about the God who gives me this, this strength. Let me tell you about the God who gives me my peace. Let me tell you about the God who's given me all, all these riches and, and everything. And it's wonderful to be able to tell them. But you know, I sometimes wonder, 
what does anybody do in this world that doesn't know Jesus? You know, they, they think that, well, there's no purpose in life. I'm just here. I live a life. doesn't matter what I do. I die, and worms eat me. <laughs> you know, that's what a lot of atheists will say. You know, I die, and the worms eat me. You know, I, I lived a life, and I'm done. <laughs> I've heard that statement in the colleges. When I've gone to college, I've heard that statement. Well, when I die, I just, the worms will eat me. What a pointless life that is. And then we wonder why people don't want to live. Why do we have so much suicide? Why do we have so much violence? Well, if your life is totally empty with no meaning, it, it, why not? <laughs> you know, we need Christ in our heart. We need that relationship with God. We are created to be one with God. He created man to have fellowship with him. Do you realize in the Garden of Eden... Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of every evening. How would you like to have been in their place? To literally have God, which would have been Jesus Christ in, the, in his incarnate uh, presentation to them, walking and talking to them, teaching them. And then they decided to eat of the forbidden fruit and sever that relationship. But you know, not only that relationship was severed, but their own relationship was messed up. They were no longer equal. They were no longer partners. Man was put in charge of the wife. They were no longer equal. She was no longer just the helpmate created for him. And their separation from the animals was severed. Their sin had ramifications that we don't hardly understand because we don't know any better. We can't even imagine what it would have been like to be in perfect relationship with God and perfect relationship with the animals. They had dominion over the animals. The animals were not mean. They did not have wild animals. Animals did not eat, eat other, other animals. Everything ate, ate grass and fruit. What a day that would have been. And they sold it all for a lie from Satan. Did God really say? And Eve bought into it. And man was suffered ever since. Not only man, the animals, this world itself, all the storms and violence of the world established because of that fall. Oh, the, the, the price that sin has in our life. And oh, the precious redemption of Christ. We sang, redeemed how I long to pro proclaim it. We are redeemed from our sin because of Jesus Christ. Redeemed, bought back. In Galatians 2.20, which you all know is one of my favorite verses, I am crucified in my flesh. All right? Our flesh is crucified so that we can walk in victory to also look at our newest verse that he wants to cast down our imaginations and thoughts. How many people have you heard that will say they'll explain away somebody's problem? Well, that's just a sin they have. They, they just can't help it. Well, you know what? In the flesh, they can't help it. But in the spirit of God, they can be changed. No matter what their sin is, whatever it is, they can have it changed if they will just let God crucify their flesh. You know, one of the things that I hate about our modern day is that we name every, every issue somebody has. We don't have thieves, we have kleptomaniacs. They're just sick. They can't help themselves. You know, and they go down this list and everything that God calls a sin, our psychologists will say, well, it's just a sickness. Well, it might become a sickness if you do it long enough. I'm not going to disagree with them. But you know, when, as soon as you put a name on something, you give somebody an excuse. 
well, I just can't help stealing. I'm a kleptomaniac. I just can't help myself. Well, start trying to help yourself. Let God do it for you. We deal with kids all the time. Uh, I need you to sit down and listen. Well, I'm hyperactive. I just can't sit down. Yes, you can. It's just more difficult. Okay. Uh, you know, I'm a kleptomaniac. I can't help myself. Yes, you can. It's just more difficult for you not to steal. Okay. We want to be very careful that we don't say because there's a name on it that, they, that we allow it to happen. We get a drunk and we, and we call him an alcoholic and say, well, see, I have a sickness. I can't help myself. And if you've ever dealt with him, you'll hear something like this. Well, you wouldn't, you wouldn't uh, say somebody doing something was wrong if they got a cold or the flu, would you? Well, I'm sick. Well, I'm sorry. God calls it a sin. You may want to call it a sickness, but it is called a sin. And I will agree with them. Being, having a flu or the cold is not a, is not a sin. Now, you might have done some simple things to put yourself in a place to get it, but, but it's not a sin. You know, and we want to be careful with all of these things because as soon as you can name something, you start giving yourself an excuse. The first step in repentance is saying, I've done something wrong. Okay? I've done something wrong. Until you will say that it's wrong, you're not going to seek the help from God to, get, to repent, to get out of it. And that's any sin. Any sin that you have in your life. You must recognize that it's wrong. And say, okay, God, yes, you're right. <laughs> I agree with you. Now, help me get out of this. Until that time, number one, you don't even know you have a problem to deal with. Uh, again, how many people have gone along, you've been reading the Bible, and all of a sudden you get hit right between the eyes by some verse that says, this is something you need to get out of your life. Oh, God, I've been doing it for 50 years. I didn't know it was wrong. And God says, this is my verse. At that time, we have a choice. We either be obedient to, get it, to work on getting it out of our life, or we try to ignore it. I'll give you a hint. Don't try to ignore it. <laughs> if you've ever tried to ignore it, God will make life miserable. <laughs> Because he will say, I pointed this out. Before, before you knew it, it's okay. I haven't been working on it in you, but now you know. Now it's time for you to get it out of your life. And if you don't, if you're one of his children, he'll take you out back of the woodshed and spank you a little bit a few times and, and keep getting worse until you finally say, okay, God, I've got it, I give up. <laughs> you know, I've been there many times. All of us have been there. <laughs> All of us have been there where we have those times where God is saying, I want this out of your life. And we're going, no, God, I don't want to get rid of it. And he says, okay, let's, let's run you around the woodshed a few times. And he's going to get his way. All right? God is sovereign. He will get his way because he is sovereign. He is the ruler. And when he says to do something, we're going to do it. One way or the other, we're going to do it. And we've got to understand, God is in control. We talked about Adam and Eve sinning. God knew that they were going to sin before he created them. And I have always wondered, why would God create Adam and Eve knowing that they were going to sin? And I don't have an answer for you. <laughs> it makes no sense to me. I don't have a big enough brain, I guess, to understand what God gets out, sees out of it. But everything that happens in our life, God knows about it. If we cause it, God knows about it. If somebody else causes it, he knows about it. If it looks terrible to us and absolutely awful, God already knew that it was going to happen. And he's got a plan for what we're going through. Now, oftentimes, we create our own problems. But those don't surprise God either. It doesn't surprise God even if we cause our own problems. And how many times have we caused our own problem and then try to blame God for it? 
God, I just don't understand why I can't pay all my bills. I just bought a house I can't afford, a car I can't afford, the new TV, the, 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 the furniture in the house, and, and my motorcycle, and my, and my boat, uh, and, my, and my vacation home. God, I just can't understand why, why you let me not pay my bills. And God says, well, you got yourself into this trouble. <laughs> you know, this, wasn't my, this wasn't what I had planned for you because he says that the borrower is a servant, servant to the lender. He tells us not to go into debt. So when we go into mounds of debt and then can't pay our bills, eventually he might help us after we've learned our lesson and decide we're not going to do it again. But he doesn't necessarily say, let me get you out of this trouble that you have, but he also knows that we were going to do it. You know, it's very important. And then he says, I, I besought you, Timothy, to abide, to, to stay in Ephesus while I went to Macedonia, that you might charge certain people to teach no other doctrine. In other words, Paul was saying, Timothy, I'm leaving here to be the disciple of these pastors that I'm leaving in charge of this church. You help them learn to be pastors. And remember, we talked last week, Timothy's a young man. Okay? He is not very old. He's somewhere in his late teens to early 20s. And he's been left in charge of a church that Paul's leaving. <laughs> How many of our children are we raising up that, it, that uh, late teens, early 20s, we could put them in charge of something? I think it's really sad in our day that we don't teach our kids to have responsibilities. We will excuse it, well, they're just, they're just a teenager. Man, if you look back through history, you know, Alexander the Great by age 30 had conquered the known world. And he was depressed because there was no place else to attack. George Washington by the age, by the age of 20 had already been in charge of the, the army troop. Already surveyed the, west, the western part of the state that he was in. He had responsibilities. And we raise our kids up to be kids until in some cases 50 or 60 years old. You know, we've got some people that are still kids at that age excusing them. Well, I still live with mom and dad. I don't pay rent. I don't pay them room and board. I just live here. Maybe I'll get a job someday. You know, and somebody should say, out the door you go. Out the door you go. It's time to grow up. Timothy was in charge of a church in his early 20s as the overseer of the church of the pastors that are that church that are growing it. And Paul sent him there, left him there at that. Do we have that kind of maturity in our own lives? That God can say, I'm going to put you in charge of something because you're in me and you've got maturity? What a powerful statement that he has. God does not look at children having this long period of life to just make all the mistakes that they can. The teenagers should be learning to be responsible individuals. Maybe when they're a kid, there could be reason to let them make mistakes because they're just learning. And teenagers are going to make mistakes. And we're going to make mistakes. But are we learning from them or we keep making the same mistake over and over and over again? Okay. And again, think back on your own life. How many times have you kept making the same mistake in some part of your life? You know, we've all have places where we make the same mistake over and over again. Some of us are slower learners than others, like myself. I'm a real slow learner in some things. When it comes to facts, I learn facts real well, but the actual application of those facts sometimes take a long time to, to manage. Getting better. As I'm getting older, I'm getting better. But it happens. 
And then he says, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edification in the faith. Fables. Stories. <laughs> okay. Stories with a point usually, but stories. You know, and we go, well, how many fables do we have in our day? Well, in, in their day, it was quite easy. We have all the kinds of mythology that they had. We had Zeus and Herod and uh, Her uh, Herodias and Apollo and all these gods out there, and those were all fables. What about in our day? Do we have fables that we believe in our day? How about something like evolution? Millions and millions of years ago, long, long ago, when a land far away <laughs> was nothing. <laughs> and nothing exploded into life. Sounds like a fable and story to me. God says he's always existed and he belongs before time and he created the heavens and the earth and he created everything. You cannot believe both stories. If you believe in evolution, throw the Bible away because it means nothing. If evolution is true, Jesus died for nothing because there's no such thing as sin. That leads to death. Because death and disease was long before the man if you want to follow evolution's teaching. And that's why evolution is taught, to try to get rid of the Bible. So either the Bible's true or the evolution is true, and I'm going to tell you the science does not support evolution. We've been covering this in several, several things in our other classes. Fables. How many fables? How about the fable that is really popular in this world? Do more, do more good than bad and you'll go to heaven. You know, a fable put out by Satan to draw people away from Christ. How do we get to heaven? One way and one way only. We recognize that we're a sinner. We deserve the punishment that God's got in place for us. And Jesus died for our sins so that we could be with him in heaven by accepting that gift. Fables. We need to be able to separate fables that were taught from scripture. And you know, we have all kinds of different fables out there. And I'm going to spend, not spend a long time on all the fables that we could talk about. Then goes endless genealogies. The Jews were very much into genealogy because they wanted to know who they, who, what their relationship was, what tribe they were from, and all this other stuff. And it's kind of amazing in the last couple, 20 years or so, how much genealogy has become a big thing in our country. Can't watch TV without them talking about, you know, get your DNA tested to find out where you're from. Join this group and trace back your, your roots. And it's kind of fun to do so. But you know why? Why are we doing this? You know, well, I'm going back and I'm related to King so-and-so or, or this country or that country. All right, big deal. Yeah. Especially for most of us in America, if we find out we're related to any of the royal families, we're so down, far down the list that we'd never see, <laughs> get any respect for it anyway. Uh, you're five millionth on the list. <laughs> right. uh, it's not something there. and It brings questions. Fables bring questions. Endless controversies bring questions to people. And you know, the one thing I have found when you answer most people's questions, when, especially when they think they're smart, you know, I've been on the campuses, I've talked to these guys, they think they're really smart. They'll ask you this question that's supposed to be really hard, you answer it, they won't accept your answer. Or you answer that question, they'll go to another question that's supposed to be really hard and keep them from God. Lee Strobel, when he wrote the, the book Case for Christ, he, if you remember, he was trying to prove to his wife that she believed in fables and fairy tales. And there came a time after three to five years of studying Christianity, they finally asked to, somebody asked him is, when is enough enough? 
when is all the pile of evidence going to be enough for you to be convinced that it's true? There's that moment that we step out in faith and say, the preponderance of the evidence says it's true. I've got to step across the line and say it's true. Will we ever have it proved beyond uh, completely? No. Beyond a shadow of a doubt? That should be easy. It should be easy for that to be proved. Where are we going to go? When we stand on God's word, we can edify and build one another up. You know, when we have somebody that has asked Christ in their heart and they're having a hard time and they're wondering if they're saved, did you really mean it when you asked Christ into your heart? Did you really believe that he is the way, the truth, and life? No one comes to the Father but by him? Did you fully accept it? Yes? Great. <laughs> stand in that faith. Don't doubt it. I have not had to doubt my faith because I go, God, I accepted you. You changed my life. You changed my life completely, and I have not had to go doubt my salvation because I go, God, you did it. You made big changes in my life. Do you have those changes in your life that says, I am his? I am a new creation in Christ when I'm saved. You are too. When you're saved, you are a new creation in Christ. And that new creation should be able to stand up and say, I am new. Now, the longer we get away from that new creation, the harder it is to remember, maybe. But I'm going to challenge you. Did God change your life, and is he changing your life? Not are you doing better at disciplining your flesh. The flesh is supposed to be crucified. But is God changing your life? Is he giving you greater love for him? Is he giving you greater love for his word? Is he giving you greater love for the church? Because if he's not, check out and make sure that you are in there. But as you're growing with him, say, thank God. Thank you, God. I am yours. I am yours and he is mine. And, you know, it is a wonderful thing to know that we are in Christ. Seventy-seven times in the New Testament, we are told to be in Christ. What is it? Why is that important? Because if you are saved, we are placed in Christ. When God the Father looks down at you and you're, and you're saved, he looks down and he says, there is my beloved son. Because you are in Christ. You are hid in Christ. I am hid in Christ. If we're his child, we are in Christ. When we look at each other, we should see there's Jesus. Now, some of us aren't great examples of Jesus. But, you know, our love should be that person is in Christ. That person really is picture of Jesus. We need to be able to lift that up. We need to be able to honor that. Because edification is what we're called to do. Build one another up. Say pleasant things about one another. You know, make sure they're truthful. I've always said this. Anytime I talk about edification, I say make sure it's truthful. You know, don't tell somebody a bunch of lies just so you can try to be edifying them. Um, hypocrisy doesn't work either. You know, but it has been said, and I believe this, that there's something good about everybody if you, want to, if you can look for it. Something good that you can say about them. You know, I like how the room lights up when you show up. You know, it might be something that simple. But there's something good we can say about each person that we come across. And edify, build them up, encourage them. Because that's what God is wanting us to do. That's why he came, is so that we can have this edification. And edification is that, that improvement. And edification... From the old dictionary, Noah Webster's 1829 dictionary, he said that edification is the building up in knowledge, 
morals, and truth. Okay? In other words, edification can come in the form of correction. But make sure it's in love. Make sure that you lovingly encourage somebody. And we all know what it's like to be attacked by somebody and put on the defensive. And we also know how, hopefully, you've been corrected by somebody in love. And it doesn't make it a whole lot easier to accept, but at least you don't feel angry so much at them because you know that it's through love and care. And we're going to close in prayer here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask you to guide and lead us. Lord, help us to understand your grace, your mercy, and your peace. Lord, if there's anybody listening to this message online or in this room that doesn't know you, we ask that they decide today is the day to come to you, that they will recognize they are a sinner, that they deserve the punishment of hell because of their sin, but you paid that price and they will ask you to be their Lord and Savior so that they can spend eternity with you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.